You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. So if you got a Bible, once again, man, we're in Genesis chapter 1. We're not making it hard for anybody for the next several weeks, right? Finding a book in the Bible and a chapter, so... Uh, it's like page one, two, three, somewhere around there in the single digits. Amen. Uh, but we're in Genesis one. We're spending several weeks here in case you're just showing up for the first time here. Uh, a little series that we're calling sacred where we're spilling about 11 weeks in chapters one and two, uh, and just really leaning in to the goodness of God and what he has created. Um, and not only in the physical earth, but even human beings that are made in the very image of God who are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, we'll get to Genesis three and we, we've woven it in. Obviously, sin has affected everything, uh, but we don't want to miss chapters one and two. Yes, chapter three is really important in Genesis, uh, but we don't want to start there. And sometimes we have a tendency to start there. Let's also look at the wonder and the beauty of what God has done. And so today we're looking at the image of God kind of part two, and I'm really leaning in more on the function, the, kind of the mission that God has behind this idea that all of humanity is made in the image of God. So let's stand together if you're able in honor of reading God's word. So we're going to start there in verse 26 and read down to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 31. So hear the word of the Lord. So then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. As so God created man in his own image, he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. And evening came, then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Um, We cannot understand anything in the Bible without your Spirit's help, and so we ask for that and invite that in this morning. And Lord, we don't want to be ones that just understand. We want to be empowered by your Spirit to live this out. And so may our knowledge follow with action. So God, help us to see maybe just one small step that we can do in response to what we heard this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe see you. So if I had to kind of sum up what I'm trying to do this morning, uh, I'm trying to do my best today to kind of help us understand what is it exactly that we are to do on this earth. No matter where your spiritual interest is, I would say this is the call of all of humanity, not just those who call themselves Christians. So I just want to bring as best I can this morning some clarity, like what is it? What's, 
What's our purpose? What's our point? What's our meaning? What are we to be doing on this earth? What is God's call? What is God's, what some theologians call vocation for all of humanity? When we talk about vocation, I'm not just talking about your career, your job. It's more the, the whole of your life, from your hobbies to your family life, to your relationships. And it does include your job, your career, and what you do, but that's kind of vocation. So what is God's call for my vocation here on earth. And so that's what I'm trying to do this morning. And, and Lord willing, uh, may God help us uh, as I try to attempt this. Um, most of you know that I, I do have a cat. I think I've mentioned this little boogerhead sometimes on uh, sermons here and there. So this is uh, Luna. This is our cat. Been in our home for about two and a half years now. Uh, Luna comes from the Harry Potter series. I don't know if you know that name, but she's a character in the Harry Potter series, very unique. And so uh, we thought that would be a, a fun little name. And so I, I'm not like, I don't, I don't hate cats. I, I don't, I don't maybe love them, love them, right? I really enjoy dogs a lot more. But at the same time, I do love Luna. I, you know, uh, she's a little annoying sometimes and just cats are very unique animals. They just basically do whatever they want to do. They don't really listen to anything you say. Like you can, I don't even know if she knows her name for crying out loud. At least a dog eventually knows their name, right? And it's like, I don't know, but maybe she does. And she's just like, I don't like call me by my name that's stupid <laughs> I don't know I, but that's uh that's cats for you but here's the question that I have for you and I know these I know you're going to get the answer to this and kind of follow me but just kind of bear with me and, and and humor me with this so what does a cat do what's their function in this world they do a lot of that amen um when I leave in the morning, uh, usually Luna is laying down somewhere, right? Using that little cubby. When I come back in the evening, nine times out of 10, she is still there, all right? So obviously most animals, including cats, uh, especially as they get older, not when they're young necessarily, but when they get older, probably 75 to 80% of their time is sleeping. That's, that's pretty much all they do. And they will get up to eat, right? Go to the bowl, make sure there's food there, eat for a few minutes. After they get done eating, they'll stretch a little bit. And guess what they'll do after that? This is not a trick question, guys, all right? This is not really hard. They will sleep for some more time. They just, that's all they do. They basically sleep and eat. And every once in a while, something else happens to where they might change their mind. If a fly, you know, is in the house, sometimes Luna will say, ah, I want to... Have some fun with the fly, the sadistic element within all cats where they just like to torture animals before they eat them, right? It's just like, put their paw on them, let them go, oh, they're free. No, I don't think you're free. Come on back down here, right? You're seeing a cat catch a mouse. It's really sad. It's like, just eat the thing for crying out loud. Same with the fly. She does the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm just put my paw on you and just play around with you for a little bit. And so she'll play with the fly maybe. Maybe she'll go to the window and look at all the other cats that are out there or birds or whatever. And if we ever get like a laser beam for some reason with cats, the way God's created them, they freak out about a laser beam. They will chase this laser beam for like hours upon hours. And then after they get done chasing the laser beam, what do they do? They sleep. That's all they do. Now look, that doesn't mean that we don't care for cats, love them, treat them with respect and honor just because they functionally don't do much to society, right? Or add any value necessarily as much to society. Uh, you know, because they are created by God, but they're not created in the image of God. 
So I don't have any expectation for Luna to do anything for the family, right? I don't have any expectation for her to get up, get outside and earn your keep in this home, right? No, like that's an animal. An animal just, that's what they do. They sleep, they eat, and they do whatever else animals do. They don't add any kind of necessary functional worth to the home in the sense of like resources, right? But I have a different view when it comes to my kids. Amen? Like if all my kids did was sleep, eat, chase a laser beam, and look out the door at birds and other animals, and that's all they did, we would have a little bit of an intervention. Amen? Right? And so would you, right? You would. Why? Why is that? Because there is an expectation as someone who is created by God in the image of God, that there is a function, there's a doing there. There is a, there's a, there's a, you, you need to be a, 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 you know, functional part of society. We, we feel that on a personal level and we expect that from a human being, not from a cat, not from a cat. Now, Bear with me, making a little bit of a jump here. Most cultural experts would say this, that we are not only facing enormous medical and health crisis in our time, we are also facing an enormous mental health crisis in our time. And you can look at the, the rates of suicide and how they are rising, um, depression being diagnosed and the medicine that helps that is astronomical. Um, and I think there are many reasons why this is the case, all right? I, I do, and I'm not here to kind of unpack all those reasons. But I do think there's one that seems to stand out and maybe is the most obvious, and that is this, is that a lot of people have no idea what it is that I should be living for. They lack any real meaning in life. And so, stay with me, all right? If we have taken out the idea that we are created beings, that we are created wonderfully and beautifully made in the image of God. So if you take that whole concept out, if you take that origin story out of, of a play within our culture, then it does create this gap. And that gap is like, why am I here? What's the, what's the point of my significance? Like, what am I to be doing here? What? What meaning is there in life? And, and if you've got that hole, then we've got to, you've got to fill that gap with something. And we have. We fill that gap by saying, all right, well, my point in my life is to be as successful as I can, just upward mobility, so to speak. You know, point in my life is to make as much money as I can, you know, kind of follow through with whatever that is, because if I get more money, then maybe that will help me buy things and consume things that will maybe lead to me to having more of a, a happier life, just kind of more of a hedonistic, just whatever makes us happy, let's pursue after that. And if anything is not making us happy, whether it's a spouse or a job or a situation in your life, then I need to get out of it quickly because man, I, I need to be more, more happy here. And, and, you know, I mean, all of this can be kind of defined as sort of this, as some people call it, this secular life script right? It is. You've got to, 
if, if we are not created beings in the image of God, if we've taken that story of origin out and we have, we, we're just evolved animals, then we've got to put some kind of meaning to life. Like we've got to put something in that gap that we've created. And if you've lived long enough, right? And even if you haven't, even if you're in your 20s or 30s, you're feeling this. This whole secular life script of Upward mobility, more money, more pleasure. If I get this and do this and do whatever I want, get more freedom, then eventually I'm going to get to a place where I feel satisfied and content. And the reality is this, is what we don't. It's, it's really bankrupt. I mean, we've even created a, a name for this when you get in your 40s and 50s, and it's what? Say it out loud. It's a midlife crisis. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, all right? And I know a lot of us in here are envying that mustache, amen? You can hide some food in that sucker. But he said this, inside a Darwinian worldview, which was his own, and so, so pause, I'm not, I'm not trying to refute all of this today, I'm just making a statement from him, all right? Inside a Darwinian worldview, and you might be here and say, well, I don't, I don't want to hear that worldview. I don't believe in that worldview. And okay, I, I hear you. Some of us will confessionally not believe in that worldview, but functionally, we actually live this out more than we realize we do. Because this Darwinian worldview is, is sort of, I would put before you, the, kind of the soup we swim in. It's so prevalent within our culture that we don't even see it. We can't even know when we're actually living out of that script, right? But he said this, inside a Darwinian worldview, the only two rational decisions are moral depravity or suicide. That's why I put before you, it matters what story of origin you believe in because eventually it does come out in how you live. So if Genesis 1 is true, which I say it is, and it's giving the origin, not only all that we can see in creation, but it's getting the origin of me, of humanity. And that origin is that you have been created in the image of God. You have the stamp imprint of who God is on you that then drives you to figure out what is the point? What's the meaning? What am I to do here? Something is ache in us where we want to know what that is. And that's what I wanna focus on this morning because I think that's the emphasis that the writer is helping us see about the image of God, that there's something about the functional aspect of it that we need to hear this morning. Notice what he does here, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And notice what he says here. They will, say it out loud, rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And then again, if you go up to verse 28, notice what he does. He almost repeats verbatim here what he just said in verse 26. And you got to remember, 
This is something you got to remember. Like the, the way they emphasize things, because they, they didn't have like bold, they didn't have italics, they didn't have underline, they didn't have like a different font. They would, they would put it in. The way that they would emphasize something is they would repeat it, right? You following me? That's the reason why I also say the reason why we know that this is the, the climax of creation is not because in our Bible it says, this is the climax of creation, day six, boom. No, the reason why I say it's the climax of creation because in an, in an oral culture, when they are hearing this, they notice that day one has got like a sentence, but day six is like a paragraph. So it's telling us that, wow, this is the emphasis. This is the climax. And the same with repetition. Verse 28, God blessed them. I love that, right? The first interactions with humanity is a blessing from God. Isn't that beautiful? His face shining on them, his favor on them, speaking to them. He goes on. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And there's our word again. What is it? Say it out loud. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. So the image of God has a functional significance. Yes, last week we emphasized more of the, the abilities and the capacities that being made in the image of God means we are relational and rational beings. But here, this seems to be the emphasis is on its functional significance. That's why theologians will say being made in the image of God is a vocation, something that we are called to do. That's why in David in Psalm 8, what does he emphasize when he's thinking about humanity? You made him little less than God and crowned. That's, that's royal language there. Crowned him with glory and honor and you made him. There's our word again, say it out loud ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. So when we're created in the image of God, it means that we're to rule, that we're to reign with God, that we have dominion. This is given to both male and female, not just to male. Male and female have been stamped with the image of God that have been given this vocation to have dominion and rule over all that he has created. This is king and queen language that the writer is getting after. That's why Hannah Anderson in her good little book, Made for More, and if you've not gotten that, I continue to encourage you to do that. This is what she says about that. This phrase here, created in the image of God, is doing more than simply explaining how we came into existence or offering an argument for why we should respect, value, and care for one another. She's not saying that, isn't saying that, it's just, there's more, what is that more? By revealing that we're made in God's image, look what she says here, it is revealing how we are to exist, how we are made to live, and what it means to be human. Being human means sharing God's nature in some way. Being human means living as he lives and doing what he does. And what does God do? He rules and reigns and being made in the image of God. We are also as male and female to rule, partner with God and rule with him. We are God's royal stewards put to develop the hidden potential in God's creation so that the whole of it can celebrate and enjoy the beauty and the glory and the weight of God. No, we're not to be tyrants that exploit the earth, but rather we are to be stewards ruling before and in the very presence of God. So with this in mind, that this is our purpose, this is our vocation, this is what God has called all of us to do, to rule with him. When you think that, right? When you hear that language, 
um, it probably feels sort of large and awesome. For some reason, I just like doing this when I think about it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm ruling and reigning with God. Yes, that feels big. Yeah. But here's the question. How is this ruling playing out on earth for Adam and Eve? Or another way of looking at this, what does it look like in a, in a very tangible way for Adam and Eve to rule the earth with God? Here it is, my big hands, right? What does that look like? They're gardeners. If you're a gardener here, I love you, and I don't mean this in any way offensive. Please, if I offend you, I'm asking for forgiveness. But that just feels kind of small, doesn't it? A gardener? That's how it's being lived out? A, a gardener? I mean, look what he says here. In chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and in the east there he placed the man he had formed. Verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So don't, when you think about the garden here, don't think about your garden in your backyard, but think more of like a, a major national park. But my point is simply this. When you think about this idea of subduing and ruling, Adam did this by being a gardener. This is what he did. This is the, the, the tangible function of ruling and reigning. Him and Eve were gardeners. And I don't know about you or where you're at when it comes to career, but I was in student ministry for 20 years, and I do not remember one student when I would say, hey, where are you going to school? Blah, blah, blah. What do you want to do with your life? Not one of them said, I want to be a gardener. It wasn't high on the list, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys went to any kind of little preschool graduations, which I don't even understand why we have preschool graduations, but thank God for them. If you went to one, like I had to go through four of them and sit through that wonderful ceremony that they would do for them and you would just celebrate and take pictures or whatever. But what does almost every preschool graduation have in it? What would the question they would ask those three, four, five-year-olds? What would they ask them? What do you want to do when you grow up? And that was always an adventure with, with a kid and a mic. Amen? That's an adventure in and of itself, right? But I don't remember one kid ever seeing a gardener. Look, I'm not trying to downplay that role in any way at all. I'm just trying to help us see that we have in our mind this idea of ruling and reigning being something large and enormous, but then God put Adam and Eve in a garden, and the way that they were to functionally live this out was to be gardener. You can have them doing anything else, anything else, but they're a gardener. Now, why is that? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons on why I think this is really important because I think it's, it helps us understand more on a tangible level what it means for us here in this life. Cause I don't think it's saying we all have to be gardeners. I think it gives us some ideas of what it means to reign and rule. The first one is this, by him saying that they are gardeners and that's what he can't call them to do. It speaks to the nature of our work, to the nature of our work. When you think and hear rule and reign, you need to think, cultivate 
You need to think steward. You need to think careful. It's exactly what a gardener does. You cultivate the soil, you steward it, you care for it. And the reason why you're doing that is so that you can flourish whatever it is that you're, what you're planting or growing, whatever it is. You know, so, so that the nature of our work is informed by us understanding this idea of what a, a gardener does. They cultivate, they steward, and they care for. So another way of thinking about this is what does a reined in garden look like? What does a, a garden that has someone who is ruling over it in such a way to where it's cultivated and stewarded and cared for and flourishing. And here's a picture of a, not a very good reined in garden. Amen? This is my garden at home. It's been rough. And that's actually kind of good compared to what it was about a month ago, all right? It was pretty bad, all right? A lot of weeds. A lot of wonderful dandelions in that garden. So that's not a great picture of a raven garden, but here's a, a better picture. Now, this is not mine, obviously. I, I just got this off the internet. This may be someone else's in here, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like we, we get this idea of what it can look like. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's orderly, it's, it's abundant with life, it's, it's well cared for. It's, it's cultivated. As image bearers, we bring beauty out of ugliness. We steward the world and everything in it. So this is, this is the nature of our work. doesn't mean that every single one of us need to be gardeners, that that's what we need to go after. But whatever occupation or whatever vocation you're doing, this is what you need to think about when you are called by God as an image bearer of God to rule and reign with him. You're to cultivate, you're to steward, you're to care for so that it just like we see when a garden is well taken care of. So like God, we don't, we don't look at people, we don't look at places, we don't look at things, we don't look at objects as, as something to consume, but rather as gifts, gifts from God to care for, to cultivate, to build up to make beautiful. And look, I'm not gonna dive into all the implications of this or even your own personal application of it, but I do invite you to take time to sit down and say, okay, whatever role or whatever sphere of kind of rule that you have or sort of reign, quote unquote, or wherever work you do, I think this is the work you need to do. Think through, like, what does it look like for me to cultivate, steward, and care for this in such a way to where it flourishes? So the nature of our work is we cultivate, we steward, and we care for. And this is probably, I don't know, a little side note. And I know there's a lot of complexities to this, and this is not the heart of what I'm trying to say. But I do think there's something here. Um, it's interesting that as followers of Jesus Christ, those who call themselves Christian, that we are not known for people who care for the earth in this fashion. If I would go across the road and talk to my friends, who probably would say that they're not, they're not Christians. Um, and if I would ask them, who do you think of when you think about someone that really cares for the earth? Who are the people that come to your mind immediately? I doubt they would say Christians. That's a little concerning, I think. 
that if part of being made in the image of God and part of our function is that we, we, we care for, right? We cultivate, we, we steward. We want things to flourish. We don't consume and, yeah. I think you can hear my heart here. I don't have all the answers here. I'm just trying to say like, there's something here for us to sit with and wrestle with. That our reputation isn't ones who really truly care for this earth that God has created and we're the ones that God has called to do that. It's part of our function, part of our doing. It's part of being made in the image of God. Side note, back to this. And so maybe we can have further conversations about that if you want to. So yeah, nature of our work. And then the second thing, I think, when he talks about us being a gardener or putting Adam and Eve in there to garden this, this beautiful garden of theirs, I think it speaks to the value of all work. So not only does it speak to the nature of our work, but I think it also speaks to the value of all work. Notice, notice here in verse 15 in chapter two. So the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden. And this is what they're to do. What are they to do? They're to work it and watch over it. Or another translation would say they would keep it and care for it. So notice whenever the nation of Israel first heard this in Genesis chapter two here, as far as what Adam and Eve were going to do in the garden, like what did they think of? What came to their mind when they heard that Adam and Eve were to work it and watch over it? What probably wasn't what came to our mind. What comes to their mind when they heard this was the priestly duties. This was the the responsibilities of the tribe of Levi when it came to their responsibilities within the temple. This is what they would have thought of in Numbers 3, verses 5 through 8. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron, the priest and assist him. They are to perform duties for him, for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work. That same translation that goes on in Genesis two of the tabernacle, verse eight, here we hear it again. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites doing the work of the tabernacle. So the thing that they would have thought of first when they heard what Adam and Eve is to do in the garden were these priestly duties that all of Israel would have thought when they heard of these words is that Adam and Eve, when he's placed in the garden to work it and watch over it, would be the same thing that the priestly, the tribes of Levi's would have that responsibility within the temple. Now, what is God doing here, right? What is he doing here by, by kind of like bringing this parallel, so to speak here? Here's what I think, in part, not in full, but in part. I think he's trying to speak to the value of all work. Because the the tendency for the nation of Israel and even for us is that the people that are doing the Lord's work are the priests. They're doing the work in the temple. They're doing, that's the Lord's work. We're just out here surviving, right? We're just trying to make it happen. And I think God is trying to come in and correct that script. Said, no, 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 no. All work is God's work. All of it is done under, under his banner, under his influence, under his presence. All work has enormous value, not just the temple work. And so like, this is how it, it gets kind of sort of in our uh, system, so to speak. And I don't know what you grew up with, but in my tradition, when I grew up as Southern Baptist, is that we had a tendency to, to value the work that a minister did. And we would use the language of, they are doing the, say it out loud, the Lord's work. 
And by saying that, I'm not trying to undervalue the role of pastoral ministry and those that are called into full-time vocation. I'm just trying to to lift up, no matter what at work it is, they are doing the Lord's work, whether you're a full-time pastor or in vocational ministry. That's the Lord's work, as well as at Starbucks, as a barista, at Chick-fil-A, as a teller, at uh, Ford, as a, uh, you know, assembly line, as a teacher, a medical worker. I can't go through all the occupations or be here for a long, long time. Amen. I think you know what I'm trying to say. All work is a value here. All of it is not just what I do. And so here's the thing. I don't know if you experience this a little bit, but, but just like I said earlier, when you think about rule and reigning, it just feels so large and significant. But the problem is what fuels my life seems to get in the way of ruling. What fills my life and my life is full of daily activities. That includes sleeping like animals. Amen. Right. That include unloading and loading the dishwasher. That include helping getting dinner ready. That includes like cleaning the house, whenever the house needs to be cleaned, bathrooms, whatever. That include the work that I do here, responding to emails, making phone calls, studying for a message here, trying to figure out how I'm gonna help so-and-so with their situation, whatever. I mean, my life is filled with a lot of things that don't feel like ruling, right? I don't know if you've read Hannah Anderson's book, but I think she said something along the lines that if she accumulated the amount of meals that she would make in her lifetime, if she lived kind of the, the average age, it'd come out to be like 50,000 meals. And it seems like, right, it seems like those things get in the way of ruling. And God is just trying to say, no, all work, all of it, as we have wonderful music in the background right now, all work, right? is of value and worth. I love what Julie Candless says in her little book, A Theology of the Ordinary. Listen to what she says about this passage. In the Genesis account, God is pictured as a temple builder who is constructing his house. There's a parallel between the six days of creation and the building of the temple. It's interesting. But here's the twist. What is God's temple? Where is his majesty, his presence, his sacred dwelling? His temple is the earth. The earth now takes on supreme significance as a place to worship God. Ordinary life on earth is temple life, worshipful, everywhere a place of communion with God. The limited, finite creatures who is put in the garden is gently placed there to work and keep it. I'm just trying to take a step back and go, wow, of all the things that he could have had Adam and Eve doing to help us see what it looks like to rule and reign, he made them gardeners. And when you step back and look at that, it helps us see the nature of our work. So no matter what we're doing, the nature of our work is we're cultivating, we're stewarding, we're, we're, we're making things beautiful, we're, we're caring for it, we're, we're trying to see things flourish. And what I'm ruling over. And not only the nature of our work, but, but also the value of all work. All of it. All work is of value and significance, no matter how ordinary it may seem to you, as well as to those around you. That's usually where it gets us. It's not just how it seems to me. It's usually like what other people think of my work. God sees it. God notices And God is present with you, no matter how ordinary that work may feel. 
love how Brother Lawrence says this in the practicing of the presence of God, he writes this. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. So if God can be glorified in every little task, including eating and drinking, how much more, how much more can he be by laundry, dishes, mowing, writing a thank you letter, baking a cake, cooking for a neighbor who's going through a really difficult time. Look, all your work is of value and worth. So I, like, I don't know how you're coming in this morning. Like, I don't know how you're coming in thinking about Monday morning, right? But I, I, I would guess that there's some of us that are looking at the, the whole of their work, not just their job, but even the whole of their work, what they do in their family, in their relationships, with their hobbies, whatever it is, right? And I'm, I would guess that some of you would think, I don't see anything important in this. What's this really doing? What does this really matter? Is there really any significance? Is this making a difference in people's lives? And I just want to encourage you by saying, it is. It is. Why? Because your father, your father sees. It matters to him. You have have means by which you have communion, relationship with him in the midst of whatever work it is that you're doing. And my encouragement to you is if you're at a place where you don't see the value in it, then ask. Just come to him. Say, God, please help me to see this week the value of the work that I'm doing. So I'll close with this. I get it. Um, Sin has wreaked havoc on this call. Like humanity, whenever it's left to themselves, they don't create beauty. Most of the time they create a, a mess or it's a combination of both, isn't it? Or to kind of put it on a more personal level, I, when I'm left to myself, don't always create something that's beautiful. I create something that's an absolute mess. I would say that all of temptation, maybe, maybe nuance a little bit of this, but for the most part, all of temptation after the fall, after what we see and happens in Genesis chapter three can be characterized as overrule or underrule. And we've forgotten what it is to steward God's creation. Instead, we've wanted to be God. But Jesus did come to change this. He did come to renew, to restore, to redeem, bring humanity and all of creation back to its original design. Jesus came and he lived this life in a perfect way as an image bearer, the exact imprint of God, as Hebrews says. He came and lived this way in a perfect way. In fact, he spent 30 years doing what? Being a carpenter. Most likely it's what he did because it's what his dad, Joseph, did. So he carried on the family business. And we don't have any knowledge of any of that. We don't, 
We've never seen an artifact that he made. We've never seen anything. We don't know anything about that. But listen to me, that work matters. Whether we know it or not, it matters. Why does it matter, Lyle? Because it was done in the presence, under the the beauty and under the wonder and the guise and the, the joy of his father. That's why it matters. So even the, the work that he may have spent 30-some years doing was not wasted work because it was done in the very presence of his father. And after Jesus had finished the work of living the life that we should have lived and dying our death, buried and raised to life and resurrected, John chapter 20 captures this resurrection by saying this, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying, And as she was crying, she stopped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they have put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't notice it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener. In all my life, I've studied the scripture. I've never seen these connections at all. And maybe I'm reading into things. I don't think I am. All right. But I find it really interesting that in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are putting in the garden to do what? To be what? A gardener. And then when we go all the way to the resurrection of Jesus, Mary thinks that he, Jesus, is a gardener. He could have showed up in any way, any way possible, right? I mean, can you not, like, he could have showed up as a king, right? Could have came in a robe and whatever it is, and it would have been obvious that he was not a gardener. It had been obvious that, like, you are royalty. You should be doing something. He could have came just glowing, right? He could have just came floating around. I mean, I don't know, I'm being goofy right now, but you're with me. Like, he could have came looking like an angel of God and, like, really bright. It's like, I don't know what you are, but you're not from this earth. But he came here and Mary thought he looked like a gardener, which means this, he did. <laughs> so like, there's something in the way that he carried himself and dressed and the activity that he did to where he looked like a gardener. So what is God doing here? I think in part, at least metaphorically, he's saying, hey, this is how we started in the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden as a gardener. And guess what? The resurrected son, Jesus Christ, was mistaken for a gardener, helping us see that the new creation has started in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has started this work and he's going to finish that work. And that finished work is what? He's going to make all things new, this entire universe and going to make all those who are in Christ new also to be who they were created to be. Remember last week, look, the goal in the Christian story is not to get you to heaven. It's not. That's not the goal in the Christian story. The goal in the Christian story is to get to heaven on earth. That's what it's after. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's prayer, our God, may your will be done in heaven as it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like the, the idea here with kingdom is to get heaven and earth back the way it was when it was at the very beginning. And for you as an image bearer of God to get the hell out of you, right? so that you can live as God created you to live in and through his son, Jesus Christ. I may be stretching, but I don't think I am. I think this is a little bitty hint of saying, hey, this is the start of the new creation in and through my son, Jesus Christ. I'm making 
all things new. And Mary thought you were a gardener, right? A little hint to what happened in Genesis 2 to remind us and give us the confidence to know that, yes, this is going to happen in and through his son, Jesus. So may we, by God's grace, love Jesus, worship Jesus, serve Jesus, give our lives to Jesus, because it's only in and through him that we can live out as these image bearers of what God intends us to be. So by his grace, may he empower us to be that kind of people. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.